Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on Andrew Lug Oldham. Students and observers of the history of rock and roll will know Andrew as the original manager of a little R&B combo from the UK called the Rolling Stones. Andrew was with the band until 1967, producing all of their hits up until that point, but more importantly, shaping their image and to a large extent creating the blueprint the band has built from for decades. While we don't spend a ton of time covering his tenure with the band, you'll see that it's impossible for them to not come up. We didn't shy away from the topic, but Andrew's time with the Stones has been covered in countless documentaries and books, including those of his own writing. Instead, we took a dance through his history, his ideas, and his philosophies, with plenty of fun stories and anecdotes along the way. Our hour together blew by, and my only regret is that we did not have several more. Andrew's a generous and engaging storyteller, a spiritual forefather of all of us in the modern entertainment racket. It is with great pleasure that I bring you this conversation. Enjoy. There's an engineer called Glenn Johns. Have you heard of him? <laughs> of course. Okay. Yeah. And, there, and there's a producer called Shel Talmy, who produced The Who and The Kinks and the early, some early David Bowie stuff when he was Davy Jones. And he, um, he somehow had, Shel had a number plate from a fr friend of his, and it was LP, LP1. <laughs> and Glenn Johns said, could I use that for a few weeks? The Eagles are coming into town and I want to look good. And one of the first, I think it was probably Desperado, those things, you know, yeah. uh, at, at Olympic in London. Anyway, Glenn never returned the plates. <laughs> 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 yeah, once an engineer, always an engineer. Well, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't one of those white lab coat engineers, was he? No, he was not. No, he was... Oh. Uh, I'm one of you. Yeah. He addressed to, uh, yeah, hey, you know, well, what's the act wearing this week? Okay, that looks good. I'll do that. Excuse the, excuse the shadow. I mean, look, it's not that bad, but there's no, the, the light in Vancouver. There where you can see I'm vaguely here. There you go. Okay, good. Now back to where it was. Um, no, man, he, and he actually produced the Rolling Stones before I did which was Blinded. one of the reasons that when interviewed by somebody for me for one of my books, he said, Andrew Oldham, he couldn't produce juice out of an orange. <laughs> right. And he, he, but he was very good friends with the sixth Rolling Stone, the um, Ian Stewart, who <laughs> I te technically got rid of, which is not really true. And uh, he had recorded. Are we, are we on now? Yeah, we're good. We're rolling, <laughs> we're all right, that yeah. stuff. Good. He, um, because this bit doesn't get, but as we're celebrating, celebrating the anniversary of Brian Jones' death. But anyway, oh God, they'll be down on me for that. Glenn and Stu, Ian Stewart, who was the sixth Rolling Stone, knew each other very well, and there was a very sort of forward-looking studio in London at that time on Portland Place above the BBC called IBC, mm -hmm. and one of the owners was an orchestra leader, and the other, and the other one did the business. And Glynn, who was an apprentice there, persuaded the uh, studio. They said, listen, give this group I like, the Rolling Stones, free studio time to do three or five things. 
Uh, and what do you want? And they said, well, we don't want an option on them for six months to go and place their stuff with a record company. Now, this is when they were under the uh, mantle of an impresario, in, in very loose quotes, called Giorgio Gomelsky. Mm-hmm. And he, and that was really, I think the studio was very, you know, there weren't many studios in the middle or August of 1962 who would do that, you know, give you free time, or even were thinking in terms of let me, all right, we'll take a chance on this, you know, with this rhythm and blues or whatever. And uh, then I came along and cut two. So we don't spend the whole time just discussing this particular aspect of them. I'm training Brian Jones on the corner. Now, look, the, I've give, we've given him 90 pounds because we work out that's what the studio will claim they've got in it. Oh, because I was, the Rolling Stones and I were already in love. And they go, oh, by the way, we've got this small problem, <laughs> this contract with this IBC studio. Oh, well, thanks for telling us. Fortunately, Brian Jones was the only one who'd signed it. So I'm training him on the corner. To, and his, his act has got to be, I'm so fed up with these Rolling Stones, man. This band, they're not professionals. They're really not, you know, I've got an opportunity to go and join. And I said, Brian, don't say the Yardbirds, but have the, the, the words, the Yardbirds in your mind, you know, so, so you look believable if one of them is, is really good in the room, right? And he goes in and I'm waiting on the corner and they take the money. And then the Rolling Stones were free. <laughs> But, um, you know. Andrew, why do you think the the label, uh, the studio owners at IBC had, what would make them say, we'll take that six-month option? Other than it be, being easy to say, were people at the time thinking that there were bands everywhere and everybody might no. make it? Or I don't I think, think that so. was the case. No, it's true. It's like, it's, it's early. It's like, this is like, God, where did I meet them? I met them April of 63. So... They had made this tape in around October, November, October or November. I'm not even sure if Charlie Watts was on it because I don't think he joined till January. Bill had joined the previous because you don't ask when you meet a group, how long have you been in the band? <laughs> you know, they're a band, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, no, this was very forward looking. Either they liked Glynn, either Glynn was nice and pushy. Um, or um, I, I sort of think, I kind of think because one of the owners of the studio was a band leader, that might have helped, I don't know, diminish his prejudice against this yeah. new wave, this sort of COVID wave that was coming up to take over the music business, you know? <laughs> equally, as, uh, equally as filthy and uh, transmittable. <laughs> indeed, indeed. What became of... Um... Of Gomelsky. Gomelsky. Well, Gomelsky, he, he was great. I mean, I've known, and I'm sure you have, people from Austria or Germany in America who just kept the accent because it helped the gig, you know. And, uh, <clears throat> and Giorgio was one of those, you know. Giorgio was like, I don't think it would anymore, man. But, you know, then, oh, well, how charming. But Giorgio was, like, full of revolutions and all this stuff. Um, but... I don't think he could ever handle anything that would, could play into, in a room of more than three people. Yeah, I think he ended up, he only died a few years ago. He, he already did. came to the States. Yeah, in New York, yeah. yeah. Um, and he used to hold gatherings, <laughs> you know. I mean, we've met, Craig, we met a few of those nutcases when I was doing the radio for Stephen Van Sant. You know, they would, you know, 
Otto from another universe. God bless you, Otto. And he just held, I think he held fourth in New York. Okay, he had Julie Driscoll and Brian Auger. He had the, that for the hit period. Yeah. He drank with the right people at Polydor, which is how Robert Stigwood got in, a guy called Roland Rennie. If you could go, go the whole, if you could drink all day with this guy, you had a deal. Um, Fair enough. Hey, he lived till he was, I don't know, close to 80, which is fine. Yeah. He said, approaching it himself. <laughs> <laughs> Looking to blow past it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, let's but not he, talk about your mortality. Let's talk about your immortality. I'd, I'd prefer to have that discussion. Okay. I, I'm much more interested in you as um, a figure who, in a similar way, has, has been around and has always been. It's, 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 it's very appropriate to me that you're sitting there lurking in the dark, in the shadows, um, yeah. <laughs> on this call. Because you're always there, um, and you've always been there. And like locusts, you surface every <laughs> few times a generation. Um, uh -huh. But you're, you're always in the background um, and sometimes in the foreground. And one of the things that's interesting to me, I, you know, I, I've gone back and retroactively created a narrative where we have several things in common. Okay. <laughs> and one of the things... Connecticut. Yeah, Connecticut, yeah. And having spent time in, the, uh, in, in Trodnossel. Oh, oh dear. Yeah. Okay, right. Okay. Did you live in Connecticut? Connecticut. I did. I grew up. I grew up in uh, Hamden, Connecticut. Okay. And um, which is um, a little bit south of Wallingford, the suburb of New Haven. And um, when I was uh, a wee teenager, um, I had a band. And what I learned was that if we, I took the audio engineering course at Trodnossel, I could get free and discounted studio time. Okay. And so. It seemed like over the winter, investing eight or 10 weeks uh, once a week to go do that would pay off um, in free studio time. And okay. so that's what I did and recorded my band and a bunch of other bands. I lived in Wilton from uh, like 69 to 73. That's how I got to Connecticut. And how did you roll up into Connecticut? What did, what, you know, like why Connecticut? I was a tax exile, although I was not with the Rolling Stones by that time, we still had the same problems in that we spent everything, uh, you know, let's look as big as the Beatles, whatever, right? And, you know, the British government wanted 88 or 93%, whatever it was after you paid the third in America, but we were paying that no mind. We had other problems, what I should just call the problems of 1967. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so by 69, okay, they went, they went, to different places and so on and so I loved New York, man. I mean, from the time I got to New York in 1964, I kind of knew that in the Americas in general, I was home because um, I've decided it was because my father was American. Mm. Um, and so I just felt, oh, great, man, you know. Engineers are not in white lab coats. You know, they are, uh, they are enjoying their game. They're not, um, it's not a nine to five thing. There is a certain passion there with, with this uh, music business, almost like the seventh art of America, as opposed to what it, what it is in France. But, and then, ironically, I only got the closing thread to this story lately, later. I had done a deal for me and the Stones on a friendly collection basis with the producer called Bob Crew. And just because, you know, let's, let's go where we know the people. Along came a gentleman called Alan Crime, 
he was given that name by John Phillips. When I bumped into John Phillips on Third Avenue after he had come out of jail, um, opposite a place called Yellow Fingers in New York on Third Avenue, opposite Bloomingdale's. So we went in there to have a, uh, they were just open um, for drinks and had a drink. And he said, by the way, he said, guess who I was inside with? I said, go on. He says, Alan Klein. And he said, I call him Alan Crime now. So John Phillips and Alan were in the same downtown Manhattan. Alan was making the 22 salads a day he had to make. And then, then he was allowed his phone calls, you know, whatever, to run his empire. And I mean, one of the, there were many, many advantages to Alan Klein. I think one of them is that once you've known him, you know all you need to know about Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> he was a Trump of his day. Well, it's a New York thing. Yeah. You know, it's not a criticism. Uh, so hold the lawyers, Jody. Um, it's, um, it's just an actuality. There's a certain, what are they saying about me? Did he you recognize know, it's, me? It's funny you say that, that uh, people don't realize, or I think America at large doesn't realize that as East Coasters and as New Yorkers, we've been dealing with Trump for, um, you know, a lifetime. And everybody knew exactly what he was, how he was. You know, there, there's been no surprises, really, that no, you exactly. would take a, a New York gangster and put him on the international stage and he's going to behave exactly <laughs> as he's behaved. Exactly, exactly. I mean, yeah. I, there's, there's another great figure in our business, a guy called Donny Kirshner. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, when I was speaking at Alan Klein's funeral, I saw Donny in the audience. You know, first, it's the red tie. You know, they've all got red ties and blue, dark blue suits. And I saw him there, so I threw him into the bit when I st was start starting to name drop. People are – and he just came up to me. Oh, Andrew, I'm so glad you remembered me. <laughs> you know, um, but that's, you know, right. that's the wonder of New York. What is he saying yeah. about me? Yeah. yeah. The place in New York where I didn't see you and um, – I suppose it might offend you by telling you it disappointed me to not see you was at the uh, Hall of Fame induction. And I always wondered if you made so much noise about going because that's what you do. Um, and it was a way to to generate more attention to do your induction or if you were truly put upon by the notion of the Hall of Fame. Well, to start with, I don't do honors well. I, mm -hmm. even, even when my trainer is training me, if they pay me a compliment, I fuck up the next four repetitions. Sadly, I know that. Uh, you know, I need a witness, and then they go, "Well done," and, and then I'm out. Then I'm sort of out of sync. And basically, it's the same thing. Stephen Van Zandt, for for all good reasons, I mean, he was in the business of resuscitating whatever he decided I was. Um, and but from all from the heart and all good things, I'm going to I'm going to get you in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm going to get you in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I said, "Don't bother." Right now, I knew him very well, but I didn't want, I didn't even know myself well enough that I could say, I won't handle it well. Because if you coupled it together with the fact that it was now no longer a private party where Keith and I could go up and Keith would be my backup when I would go up to Billy Joel and go, Billy, uh, pleased to meet you to start with. How do you write songs by yourself? And he didn't know what the fuck we were talking about because to him, that, that's his day job, and he does it to me, and I think somewhat to Keith from knowing how Keith, Keith, from knowing how the process had started for him and Mick and for others. It was curious, man, because, you know, when do you stop? 
you know, who, what brick wall, what white wall in your apartment or ex-wife or ex-business manager said, that's great, it's a hit. I mean, do you, you know, so I was, in, in that I am um, uh, totally about the power of the song, protecting you from everything. I was curious, but he just like <laughs> looked up and said, what the fuck are these guys talking about? Um, <laughs> but anyway, but uh, so that was the, so in those days, Phil with three bodyguards on, Leo on the stage and, and the actual f musical free-for-alls at the end. I could have handled it maybe in that environment. I'd like to turn down an honor from the Queen because it's just a fucking family business, man, you know, as is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know. And, okay, the year before, they were seemingly allowing the people like Quincy Jones and Lou Adler to pick who was inducted and who did their music. When I spoke to very sweet people at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I said, okay, who is going to play the music of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones? And they said, I wouldn't worry about that. There's not going to be any music. So I thought, oh, we're going to be like the accountants at the Academy Awards. And Peter Asher, Americans, except those who've lived in England, and then they don't have an idea. I mean, it's the difference between Brooklyn and Manhattan or, um, you know, thing. I may have taken advantage of him when we were both 16, when I put on an R&B, a rhythm blues night in a Hampstead Town Hall, um, claiming to be a charity. There was no rhythm and blues except in the poster because we said so we got the town hall for free. My f partner in it was a guy called Peter Meaden, who was the first Who manager for five minutes. He put when they, he called them the high numbers and so on and so forth. And Gordon, Peter and Gordon, topped the bill as Mark Conquest. <laughs> and Peter and Gordon closed the first half, of which time. We had 57 pounds, and Peter and I decided it might be better to leave. So we got our come up and so when we tried it in the King's Road and lost all the money, but there you are. And I don't know, man. I don't know the guy. Just because he's English and he's got red hair. Right. And I tried to get Keith, right? When they were having that problem, they would had to stop the tour in Australia. I mean, this is just data. It's, not, it's not, probably not answering your question. In the end, just to, to rile people, I said, I really don't want to be inducted with a dead gay Jew. That answers my question. There you go. <laughs> right, okay. That'll do. <laughs> yeah. That answers my question. And I promise you, Brian wouldn't mind. You know. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I, I, I had read a quote where you said something to the effect of, um, and it's so funny because you know, I think more than most, how these things land in print without – without the intonation, without the inflection, without the sense of irony or anything else. What, and the, the quote I read was you said, uh, no one asked me about whether I wanted to be inducted and no one asked Brian Epstein either. So yeah. I'm gonna, Brian couldn't make it to his induction and I'm not gonna make it to mine. There you go, <laughs> oh, right. Well, we made it to the mugs, we made it to the t-shirts. Okay, I, I do uh, pod chats, right? Uh, and the premise of them, but the reason they're called a chat and not a cast, is because I do them with people who I know, right? Mm -hmm. And I did one about a week ago with Elliot Easton of The Cars. Wonderful fella, right? And, he, and I'm sure it's the same for you when you do these things. Along comes someone with a remark and you go, whoa, I can live on that for a few minutes, a few hours, a few years, right? Um, 
My favorite one was from a drug money runner in Colombia who was beating his wife up on the floor because she couldn't, she was looking on the floor for a, a diamond in the shag rug, Kenya type carpet. And he just, as he was telling her to get ready, he said, I told you, don't have tears for the things that don't have tears for you. Mm. And I went, oh, that's brilliant. You know, I can mm. live on that for 12 years, right? But anyway, with Elliot Easton, we, in, in, in the thing of what we were discussing and so on and so forth, and he just said, look, he said, the two hours I'm on stage, you can have for nothing. What you're paying for is the other 22 hours. Mm. I thought that was great. You know, I mean, it's just, he just had it um, simplified. And I suppose I didn't want the other 22 hours in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, I, st I told Stephen for 10 years, I don't want it. And it was not modesty. It was my reality. How does it come to pass that um, in the, I, I don't even like to call your life a career. I think of your, I think when I, you know, and I, and, you know, obviously I, I have not ever spoken to you before this conversation. So it's all my, my perception, what I've decided in my head about you. But I think of you as one of these people that, you have a life and a career, and it's the same thing. That you're 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 this you're this entity that, um, in a way, similar to Keith, in that what you see is what you get, and that your life is performance, and your life is not um, that different when you're not on camera or on microphone. Um, and I accept that I'm probably completely wrong. No, how no. Did <laughs> um, I was speaking to. Um, a British actor a few weeks ago, Darren Stamp, and we were talking about this thing we're going through, and, and he sort of said, well, you know, uh, Andrew, um, you know, I went off to India, <laughs> and uh, you went, I said, yeah, to the dealer, you know. So <clears throat> I sort of had 25 years out because of my addictions. By the way, I do want to discuss the oral history of David Bowie written by Dylan Jones with you. Whoa, what a page burner that one was, but uh, which I just read in, in, over the last week. No, I mean, you, I'm lucky enough that the dreams I had when I was nine or 10 became a job. No, not even a job. But when I had five cars and I was still trying to impress my mother and I took her out in one of them, the Phantom Five, and she got out of it. And she still said, yeah, but Andy, when are you going to get a proper job? Well, that'll ground you, you know. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you're pretty lucky when your passions um, pay the rent on enough occasions that, um, you know, and if you like money but you're not driven by the accumulation of it or um, we're only eating one meal a day now, but two meals should do. I don't mix out of basically a circle of people who are similarly blessed. I mean, with this stuff that's going on, when I check in with uh, my friends since 64, 65, and, you know, and thereabouts, they're all well because they've been living the same kind of life. You know, this is not new to people my age or slightly older because even if we weren't conscious of the detail of it, we grew up in it after the war. A lot of rock stars who will be nameless now have invented more of what they saw in the war than is possible you know, but you got to answer those questions for the journalists as they do more interviews than I do. So, but, you know, austerity, silence, 
because our peers and our parents and our elders were not boring us to death with what they had sacrificed for us, but you could read it on their faces, and even though you didn't know what you were reading at the time, it became apparent, and if it didn't become apparent as you grew older and realized, oh, what did I stay straight for, my kids? <laughs> you know, I, through all this thing, I can remember particularly, the face of my mother told me everything, still, now, with, so we're kind of used to that. My youngest son said to me uh, about a month ago, he said, somebody had told him that when this thing ran its course or whatever, the aeroplane travel, because he was worried about the prices, was going to go back to how, what, how it was in the 80s. And he was asking me to remember what it was like um, in the 80s. And I thought, well, I said, well, because I was basically in New York then and Columbia. And I said, well, I could always afford to travel business or first to Columbia, but I did have to schlep to Europe. I couldn't pay those prices. You know, thank God for a gentleman called Freddie Laker who had those El Cheapo airlines because for like two years I had to go and visit <clears throat> my mother's boyfriend who was slowly dying. And so I think you'd get on a plane with him for 175 or 275. But in many ways, there could be blessings apart from the awful ventilator mistakes and the scrapings of the hearts and the lungs. And the, now we see that a form of dementia is coming you know, out of this thing. But three drops of oregano, eight drops of vitamin D, not just now, but every day for at least the previous 10 years and always. Don't, you don't have to be sick. Just take it, right? You know, we, we've got a – okay, I was a lecturer. I did a, a series – I went to, to uh, Thompson Rivers University from January to April doing a course on music called Rock Dreams. It was meant to be 1954 to 1984. I got as far as 1967. Then you realize – what you've missed, and you, you, you think, wait a minute, I really have to explain to them how people like Giorgio Gomelsky and what we're talking about, Robert Stigwood, Joe Meek, and the, how records, you know, how it was all done. So I spent a lot of time there. But we had about 200-plus students, and at one stage I asked a girl to enunciate, and she actually, she's in the class, and I'm, you know, I'm doing the gig, and they're there. And I said, could you enunciate? And she actually said, could I send you the question by text? <laughs> now, I'm not criticizing her. This is just the way that it is. You know, when they, when, I, when they had to write up their experiences over the 12 weeks, there were at least seven or eight who didn't know the difference between W-H-E-R-E and, and wear clothes. And it became painfully apparent that, I mean, after all, if communication is the key to whatever, right, or basically to everything, or the ability, and the ability to listen. Uh, these kids, this, this quicksand called a telephone, I mean, I welcome these times back, man. I want to go back and stay in a hotel where they hire real people, not actors, and I can say, were there any messages for me? <laughs> <laughs> I know, dream on, Andrew, dream on. But I will create, continue, in answering your other question, I will continue to to create my own world that I feel good living in. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was based on fiction anyway. To bring that into the other sort of formative figures you just mentioned of the sort of music business as we know it. Um, right. And you had to explain that sort of as part of your, your course. What were, what were you and your contemporaries using as 
what did you think you were inventing or what did you think you were doing if you aspired to something more if you had a drive if you had a if you had an you had you had an ambition what was it that you were doing no you said two words that are just they'll trip you up ambition and inventing Mm -hmm. any of us who thought that they were inventing something were shown into the side room or they fell by the wayside on their own later. Like maybe simplifying it and not wishing to be hurtful to those who admire him. But Brian Jones might be a contender for that. In that, okay, remember, I can never fully get what a musician got or what their mind was on about. <laughs> so therefore, I can explain Mick, but I might not be able to explain Keith. In that, you know, my instrument was my mouth, you know, and, and what drove, what came, how, you know, what the key was that, that, of what came out of it. But no, man, I, okay, if you were in that whole, you know, if you weren't, if you didn't own a castle that your great grandparents had built by what is apparent now to the rest of the world of slave trading, you know, um, and did you see that the guy of the company selling oxycodone died of cancer at 65? One of the today, today, yeah, I just find that karmically. You couldn't handle the pressure, man, because you know, inherited wealth is such a fucking slurp, right? Um, unless you're, you know, uh, peace and love. But if you think you invented it, or if in terms of what you're doing, you need somebody else to tell you whether it was good or not, you're in trouble. Mm. And ambition, no, we were just getting out of the way of the future that had been promised us, which was not too good. You know, we weren't poor enough to have, be from the East End, like, like the aforementioned uh, Terence Stamp and or his brother Chris, who managed The Who and, and had the record company with Jimi Hendrix. So they may be closer to what you're saying. They might have had, they had more of a gutter to get out of than I did. Uh, I went to very nice orphanages. Um, but and they weren't orphanages. They were high-end, my mother couldn't afford to keep me at home so i went to um you know these kind of places you know um and or you know we weren't nobody was going to welcome us into jobs or into the city i watch people on the street when i walk now talking on the telephone there's no difference between the way somebody speaks on the telephone who owns everything and somebody who is one week away from disaster it's the same bullshit coming out of the mouth because this is what the last 40 years has given us in terms of, um, I used to say, okay, bullshit was something that God used to give to the fortunate few. Now it's a worldwide disease. And, uh, <laughs> but I was fast. I, I did, man, I, I had such a great read, man. Like the, uh, this, uh, the oral history of David Bowie. Yeah. Tell me about that. I found it terrifying. <laughs> you know, I mean, whoa. Um, I couldn't have lasted in all of that. I can't imagine being with the one you're with and saying to her as you enter the room, by the way, um, we're not talking to that one. We're not talking to that one. We are talking to him. He's useful. I mean, okay, one of the bottom lines was, okay, when the Rolling Stones and I came to America, we couldn't afford it. You know, there was what was. We... Um, the Hotel Astor, went in the Bowie-Defreeze structure. 
of Main Man of 1971-72-73. They came in and moved straight to the palaces. You know, it was straight to the Carlisle. It was straight to the Pierre, the Sherry Netherland. That was unattainable. And until Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey started staying in separate hotels, oy vey, you know, I mean, I, it, it just the, okay, no, none of us wanted to be Fats Domino. We may have wanted to have the ease of how, when he played. So the one, one thing that you're really always looking for is the ones who win are the ones who understand the space, like Dion, right? I mean, Dion is like an, an instrument in a band. I mean, I watched him like 15 years ago in Connecticut, actually, in the Mohegan Sun. Mm -hmm. um, sit there, stand there, and decide when he was going to drop the next note in. But he was conscious of the playing and where to put himself in as opposed to <clears throat> Jewel. Um, or anybody who graduated from the Maria Carey Gymnastics School of um, listen to me and you won't catch me sing flat. And, you know, Nick Cave, shame on you. You know, you've made it okay for so many people to now sing flat. And so one of the pleasures of watching that rubbish on TV the other night, because I do watch rubbish, was the cast of the girl from the North Country. And they might say, what are you talking about? Well, actual voices that are trained to drop and breathing. If I had one question for Frank Sinatra in his swimming pool, swam for his breath to help his breath control, what did he do with the headpiece? <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I wanted to know. You know? <laughs> and by the way, in terms of John Wayne being racist, yeah. once was walking into the Beverly Hills Hotel with my wife and with a gentleman called La Bruja, who was one of those sort of, Colombian <laughs> drug kingpins, you know. One of them. <laughs> one of them. Uh, yeah, but this one, they, they, you either look like uh, Benicio de Toro playing a drug dealer or you look like the, the few could pass looking like Persian princes. You know, they, and this one, La Bruja, had it, right? You know, woof. We're walking in and John Wayne is standing at the top of the stairs with his Mexican girlfriend secretary, Sharon, and I said to Esther, I said, look, it's John Wayne. And La Bruja runs ahead of us up the stairs at the entrance of the Beverly Hills Hotel. And he says, Mr. Wayne. And John Wayne goes into that and the handshake, right? He said, I want you to meet two friends of mine, Andrew and Esther. And John Wayne put his hand out. And he said, very pleased to meet you. I'm John Wayne. I mean, come on. Okay, so that's what makes it <laughs> very worthwhile. Yeah. I wonder what John Wayne did with the hat when he went in the pool. The, you didn't uh, ask him. No, I, <laughs> I, I was so amazed at the, the, he was, you know, he wasn't like so many with little bodies and big heads. He was John Wayne. Yeah. You know. Tell me a little bit about when you had immediate and yeah. you were making records on your own, was there anything the artists all had in common to you? Is there something you need to see in an artist or that an artist needs to demonstrate to you for you to put your passion into it? Well, my standards slipped with the media. If there was one thing that they had in common, they were all children. And I, at that time, you don't, you're not going to realize that you have been spoiled by the Rolling Stones. Because when that time goes and you're faced with the small faces or the nice, 
See, I mean, you know this because I know that you've been in, in close quarters with what we're talking about. When people say to me, oh, God, man, you got to spend three minutes with Keith. How was it? I said, normal. You know, I mean, they were special when they went on stage and they didn't moan. I mean, that's so important. They did not moan. Most of Immediate Records moaned. I basically, I mean, I formed it kind of. I was getting a little too high to go outside, you know, and deal with record companies. I was like laughing at them by now. Um, and high or arrogant or cocky or whatever. But I liked the idea. I, based, I had originally hoped that Mick and Keith and me could become a sort of Holland Dozier in Holland uh, but by virtue of the way. I mean, Mick Jagger had done an incredible job producing Chris Farlow for me. That, was like a, that, was, that produced a number one record. It's very expensive. It was like one and a half Rolls-Royce Phantom Fives, which is not a sensible amount to be spending on an album, right? Um, but it was a joy to behold because, amongst other things, he actually managed to get a British brass section to, for want of a better word, to groove, you know, not to play like they were reading parts or like, you know. Um, I went off immediate records. Um, I was spending my own money anyway, you know, and, and um, I was past... Um, I mean, that's why I would admire people like Chrysalis or things who, because if you're going to do that, you've got to stay the course and turn it into a business and um, <laughs> live happily ever after or whatever the phrase is. To me, when I get fed up, I leave. Or when I know I'm going to be invited to leave, I leave 24 hours before that request comes. doesn't tell you much about immediate, but I mean, Clive mm. Davis used to take the bus to work, please. <laughs> Is it? It's just. It strikes me that it's not. It's not that long of a time that it sounds like the conventions around being a rock star and the sense of entitlement developed so quickly from the time of you know. You said you had the the Stones who, who I I, suppose, I take it when you say they didn't moan. You basically meant they showed up and they worked. There you go. And then, right. And then in a short period of time, it already became the idea of sort of the coddled, pampered. Rock well, star. okay. It goes, it goes in very fast degrees. Um, it's like, okay, when I would speak to another, uh, a drug money runner who was like five or six years younger than me, and he go, oh, man, the Beatles, it was oh, the peace and love. I said, what are you talking about? You know, before the guitars were like Bren guns, man. You know, I mean, um, okay, you went, the, the first thing is the public started taking drugs. That made and the, the ramifications of the Vietnam War. I mean, I did a, had a deal with Motown, with Rare Earth, in 69. And my business partner at the time said, actually, you've got to go and find a group. So I was down to the Westport um, Greenery, you know, the little thing in front of the Westport Cinemas where all those rich 4F motherfuckers were playing acoustic guitars and thinking, oh, Joni, you know, and things. And signed the first one that would pass muster. And they were suddenly on Rare Earth, you know. And I had was in such a mood about it. I called their first album already a household word. But even a few years, because so that's 73. Before that, public's taking drugs. The people who are running the record company have decided we are not going to go away. So they get used to it and they start dressing for the part. And then came the dreaded word advances. <laughs> you know, advances to acts. Well, and also then on the technical, tech the technical side, 
which I've tried to steer away from all my life. Let me see. I'm sure, you know, maybe through your parents. I was born when nothing came with instructions. So once things started coming with instructions, I was lost. You know, open a package, instructions. No, you just had the, the thing that you bought before. But the dr dreaded thing about advances is that it applied. I felt like Morris Levy by the time I'd finished with Immediate Records. Like artists who'd sold 180,000 singles, 80,000 of which we'd bought into the charts, were suddenly built, believing their own bullshit or what the their mother or their girlfriend was telling them, oh, you're screwing me, man. You know, I, I know I sold. The Small Faces sold 68,000 albums of Ogden's Not Gone Flake in England. That was it. But now you're also dealing with the seedier side of journalism. I mean, one of the reasons one of my books later only didn't work in ebooks is because people wanted the physical books to sell on eBay. <laughs> so... You know, it's all a learning curve, isn't it? Um, and uh, advances. And then, of course, at the end of the 60s, you're getting white acts and people who've got us to spit on, us to copy, the, the illusion of what they thought we were to copy. And look what chaos that brought on you. I mean, right. um, I mean, it's all, you know, look, the song is the living common denominator. I... Eight, nine, ten, eleven months ago here in Vancouver, went to see Lionel Richie. I was in heaven. The songs, you know, you, only if you're not clear in your prejudice can you deny the songs. You know, doing what the same job as Vera Lynn did or the Sex Pistols did with God Save the Queen or Shanana, uh, whatever it is, you, there is one of the great rewards of it all is when you see the effect a song sung in the right key, sung with the right amount of strain or sexual tension or whatever, you know, however you want to call it, it lifts people up. That might be your job. There's something incredible about uh, a two or three minute pop song when done right. Yeah, yeah. Very incredible. Um, do you think that you have a particular um, simpatico with artists? Like what, what do artists recognize in you that, that draws them to you? Ah, I think I try and become them. Mm. <laughs> There's a metamorphic uh, uh, thing. And I've noticed when I'm hanging around with people that I shouldn't be hanging around <laughs> with, you know, in that I might um, adopt some of their, their eating habits might not be good for me. In the same way that one of the joys of New York in the, um, you know, there was, uh, uh, there was Tom Wolfe's Park Avenue and Tom Hanks and, you know, the book Bonfire and all of that. Yeah. And all the other people that one knew at the end of the fifth, well, the, that you met who in America, who had made it like with doo-wop or singing on the stoops and whether they were Polish, Italian, Jewish or whatever, you know, the, it was a collective thing. When did we, re did, did we notice a change? Okay, there's a wonderful song by Dion singing with Paul Simon on Dion's new record and it's a homage to Sam Cooke. And it's talking about uh, the song, the lyrics are just great, man. Oof. Um, being on the road with him in 1962 and how it changed as they got further south in terms of the hotels they could be in or not be in. And we had the same experience with like Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells in 1965. But anyway. You know, Dion's an interesting character because, you know, on the one hand, he's, he's not 
he's not widely you know talked about in the pantheon um but on the other hand there's people you know whether it's little steven or you know you've talked to him you've mentioned him now four times in this conversation there's certain there's people that dion really impacted and the fact that he's still he's still around and working is fascinating to me that he he really his 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 importance um i don't know it just can't be denied and I, I I can't reconcile the impact he had on his generation and like the kids that grew up with Dion. And then like, if you, if you're not of that era, it's almost like he doesn't exist. That's right. Yeah. It, uh, it's, I mean, he, he, um, hey, maybe cause he started heroin early. Mm. No, he's when he was 14, man. Yeah. I mean, that was life in. So he fucked no, up I'm, his I'm own legacy. about that. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm joking about his. I mean, he, no, I mean, hey, we don't know. Uh, the only important part is his pipes, his delivery, his sense of himself and what he does and his ability to still deliver it. I mean, okay, on that, I mean, it's very dangerous. People shouldn't be making CDs, you know. I mean, I was sport, you know, I mean, you, you can't, okay, the one with uh, Jeff Beck works, the one with Van Morrison works the one with uh, Paul Simon, there's another thing by him and Paul Simon. I never thought I'd be, you know, <laughs> spending this much time on Paul Simon, but uh, no great records and things like that. But, you know, um, could yeah. have been Carl, he could have been Carl Reiner, but you know, um, like Dion, if you have sensed it because you knew what he was, you knew what he was doing. You knew he knew what he was doing from a distance, that there was something that was there that you better respect because he's respecting the craft. That, uh, that, and it's not genius. It's not this. It's hard work. It's a craft. Something has dropped. Some uh, uh, essence has dropped something in your hands. You haven't discovered it. You've been given the ability to use it. Um. And knowing that you didn't discover it is what stops you from going insane. If you think, oh, that was me, you're in big trouble. And this was by part of the, the nuts and bolts of the course I did, because I really was trying to tell the students, it doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're going to be a carpenter, an accountant, what, you know, an IT salesman or whatever the, the thing is, you, the same rules apply. And also just make sure the woman you marry is a friend first. <laughs> you teach them that in the class do you <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> well yeah. I, what, I have one other question I, I i would love to ask you and that is um you know as someone who you know has been there from the birth of a lot of this if not all of this and it was such a youth phenomenon has what's your take on watching rock and roll and rock and rollers age and um, how does it strike you to to see some of the the artists, um, whether it's you know Dylan's new record getting rave reviews, which it seems he manages to pull one out every every fifteen years that that he adds to his pantheon and then does you know a decade's worth in between that nobody pays attention to, or you know obviously the Stones and the Who on the road or McCartney out there. How does that strike you? How does that all land for you? What do you see? The Stones on the Road is basically like the Rat Pack with guitars. 
you're not getting an old man trying to write young or try to be relevant. He knows what they know what they did is relevant and they're giving it to you. Mm-hmm. And they're having a great, hopefully a great time um, uh, doing it. Well, they obviously are. Look at the sense of humor of Charlie with that thing they did with the, with the, the blind drumming thing, right? I mean, that was just fucking immaculate, right? <laughs> that was, that was um, it was just incredible, right? But I will not, I, I've had quite a few people say, oh man, Bob Dylan, you know, thing like that, you've got to listen. No, I won't listen to it, okay? Um, these are, I use the word in its context, quasi-sensitive times for all of us. I mean, when I walk around South Surrey and I run across husbands walking their sons and I feel like I should be introducing them to each other because their life before has been work, 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 and now they've got this time and so on and so forth. But to, to your question, I'm not interested in what, I'm not saying this about Bob Dylan, I'm just saying this in general, what an artist in panic, because they haven't got the forum I mean, somebody was just done for wife beating because he's not on the road. What the fuck is he going to do? Right. You know, and so I'm not necessarily, I, I think we've got a, enough of a job right now keeping ourselves on course. I'm not going to be able to have what I had going to see Lionel Richie here at the uh, Rogers thing when, all, when I'm sitting next to this black couple from uh, Seattle, right? And when they heard that I had actually seen, I was by myself because you can get a good seat, right? When they heard that I had actually seen Luther Vandross, they died and went to heaven, man. They, you actually saw, and it was like, yeah, that tub of lard, you know, like, uh, but I mean, give me the reason. Is is one of those three minute records we're talking about, like forever, right? Um, and, or exile, kiss you all over or whatever. But oh. you, you, that, um, I don't, I'm not interested in the angst of it and listen to me. I'm not saying that that's what Bob Dylan, to start with, I, I have to admit, I admire the aura more than I admire the content. I, I feel the same way about Bruce Willis. I don't go and see Bruce Willis movies, but I like him. Yeah. Glad to know that a Bruce Willis exists. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 It means you can get above the title. <laughs> There's you know, whereas for you. <laughs> Bobby Carnavari or whatever his name was in final couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what, that guy, that guy's born out of time. I think if, I think if he were an actor 30 or 40 years ago, he'd have more people yeah. would know his name. Yeah. That uh, happens. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, but then you have um, the other guy, the guy who was in um, three, uh, the thing, uh, he played. He, he put on weight and played the fat cop. Sam Bottoms? No, not Sam Bottoms. Sam Rockwell. Mm. Yeah. Okay. There is um, yeah, there, there's certain things that work that I okay. I could, I could compare. How do you pronounce that gentleman, Bob Carnivali, or what is it? Yeah, Bobby? Carnivali, right? Yeah. Okay, Bobby Carnival. Okay, Bobby Carnival. Okay, good. As compared to Sam Rockwell, it's no different. That there is a take it, you take someone into your family or you don't. That is one of the bottom lines. It's the same way mm-hmm. as when there were like gay performers like Liberace or, or uh, others, I won't because they're living, but or even Elton John before he came out or before what the wife or the girlfriend is going, Oh, 
You see, I mean, we were trained early with Johnny Ray. A husband, his antenna, knew that Johnny Ray was not competition, even if it was all subliminal. Um, he, he wouldn't resent his girlfriend liking Johnny Ray or his wife liking Liberace or the, oh, Elton John's so great. It wasn't competition in the house. And there are those elements. You, can't, you can only experience them. Um, my mother, you know, early, early, like, oh, no, the one I like is Keith. I said, yeah, why? She said, he likes dogs. <laughs> yeah. you know. There right. you go. Nobody who likes dogs can be that bad, right? That, that's there you important. go. Right. I get that. I get that. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. that's funny. Um, so what's next for you? Are, are you uh, are you in a secure location in Vancouver or, you know, what, what do you uh, what's life hold for you? I'm on a plane that goes to South America on September the 3rd. Uh, Argentina and Colombia and Cuba seem to have similarities. I think it's because the population is one way or the other grown up and lived with the military, which means in the, in the long run that you, you're more likely to follow orders. Mm -hmm. The shame about where you are is there's no general. <laughs> Just a wannabe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you had what you had in 2009 and how it was handled was handled quietly and with dignity in South America. I mean, anyway, I'm on, I don't know if the planes will fly. And also, yeah. um, uh, we don't know what we know that when the country that supplied Colombia with the most stuff recently was Turkey, <laughs> you know, uh, where, where is the reservoir of stuff? I mean, uh, I mean, fortunately, um, my family is, is they both my young, my younger son and, and my wife are in Colombia, and that's the best place for them. For the first round one, two, and three of this, um, I decided on my equal residence because I am more British than Colombian, but I'm in British Colombia. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's fine, man. You know, I have said my life was formed by the 50s, and that's what gave, you know, gave me the groundwork. Now I'm going to, you know, now I've got to make sure that's true because that's what we've got. Yeah. It's fascinating to talk to people who grew up, um, you know, in the, in the years immediately following the war. I don't think Americans realized that the post-war period for, um, for England, you know, really, it, it went on for decades. It was not business back to normal by the early 50s or even the late 50s or even the mid 60s. Like it, it took decades for, for England to get its footing again. And you can argue it didn't have its footing for very long. Yeah. No, it didn't. Um, yeah. But uh, well, when, the, when your prime minister, while he's in school, it's decided that he will be the prime minister. The system has not changed. I mean, when I was 11, I went to Germany for the first time. And I kind of, you know, if, in present day language, almost thought I was on the set of Star Wars because it had been rebuilt in terms of what America and the Marshall Plan or whatever it was, what the agenda was, whereas England was still one up, two down. But out of that, I, I mean, I made the mistake of watching a documentary on the 50s last night mm -hmm. on, a, on a songwriter called Lionel Bart, uh, who wrote Oliver and a lot of hits for Cliff Richard and things like that. And I think I just, I'll stick with my memory. My memory is personified by Daniel Day-Lewis in Phantom Thread. That is the way I would like to remember it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah. Andrew, thank you for making time to do this. Thank you. It's, it's really uh, a pleasure. It's, 
It's been edutaining, as Graham Greene said. Thank you so, so much, Andrew Lou Goldham. And thank you to our producer and editor, Craig Snyder, for facilitating this discussion. Thanks to Ant Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else with a podcast button. Please do me a favor. If you've enjoyed this or other episodes, leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform of choice. It means a lot and it helps a lot. And please keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you, be safe, and stay in touch. Thank you.